Our reading this morning is from Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, seven. He said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man begging him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that we can be in your word. We thank you that in your word we find all that we need. All that we need to know you. All that we need for godliness. So we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. That we might perceive and understand. That we might know how wide and how deep and how long is the love of Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen. Well, uh, it's become popular over the last couple of decades to start calling yourself spiritual but not religious. Uh, that, that category has, has been gaining steam now for quite a while in, in religious polls of how people describe themselves. Uh, in this formula, of course, religion represents organized, institutional, uh, spiritual stuff. Um, it's the institutional edge, right, that, that seems to be under critique. Whereas spiritual might mean uh, free form, self-directed, uh, the kind of thing that you personally uh, take up. Look, the bottom line is even, the, even people that identify with different religious categories kind of fall under the, in this group, really. I mean, most evangelicals are not actually involved in churches regularly. So, uh, so it's kind of a broad category. But, of course, many people who aren't even of any particular faith fall in that category. And the difficulty, of course, with this way of formulating things is not that institutional religion... And I'll, say, I'll speak particularly about the Christian church, isn't problematic. 
Christian history has had lots of ugly chapters. Uh, we, you know, we, we know certainly about plenty of people who have misused the church for sinister ends. Yet, if all we're doing is living out our own personal version of spirituality, we have a pretty deep problem. Because the critiques of religion for centuries have said that all that we're doing in religion is projecting our desires onto the universe. And the more, our, the more we become spiritual but not religious, <laughs> the more we move away from the church, the more, in fact, that critique proves true, doesn't it? That we are, we are actually just picking and choosing the things that we want to be true about ourselves, about God, about the universe around us. And it's little wonder then that as we become more and more isolated from one another, that loneliness is on the rise. One study from earlier this year said three out of five Americans, three out of five, say they're lonely. It's an epidemic. I mean, a couple decades ago, a guy named Robert Putnam is a Harvard professor, wrote a book called Bowling Alone, and the title tells you everything you need to know about the book, right, is that we are alone in life most of the time. This is one of the besetting problems of the modern world. In fact, it's so, it's so bad that uh, even, even specifically non-religious organizations uh, are trying to form communities. So a, a friend of mine who was a, a chaplain at Harvard was also leading a humanist community. And they had Sunday gatherings and to try to get people together, right? Because people were lonely. Um, there's actually, there's, there is, by the way, a secular humanist of the low country society that does much the same thing. Um, so we're, we cannot do this alone. You can't navigate life alone. You certainly can't navigate the spiritual life alone. Last week, we talked about what Jesus meant means for us, and we were largely focusing on the personal. We were talking about how the beginning of Jesus' ministry is coming to an end here, and we're, we're kind of hitting on a lot of the themes that we've already seen, and this morning we're going to think more about what Jesus means for us together. Of course, these are overlapping realities, but, uh, but the th- three things I think we should see this morning from this passage are that Jesus gives us perspective, gives us sensitivity, and he gives us clarity. Perspective, sensitivity, and clarity. So, let's think about perspective here. As this passage opens in verse 11, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are looking for a sign. They tell Jesus, give us some evidence, right, that you're, that you're of your legitimacy. Give us evidence that you're who you say you are. Now look, signs in the Bible are not necessarily bad. In the book of Judges, there's a guy named Gideon. In Judges 6, who looks for a sign, and it's, it's okay. God, God works with that. King Hezekiah in 2 Kings 20 does, this, does something similar. Actually, Isaiah tells us that another one of the kings, a guy named Ahaz, is told to ask for a sign. So it's not that God is against signs or that Jesus is against signs. In fact, throughout the Gospel of John, for example, most of Jesus' miracles are called signs. That's the word that's used for them. But if you remember back, if you've been following with us in Mark, if you remember back to chapter 3, verse 22, you will realize that 
no matter what sign is given, if you want to, you can make, you can explain it away. Jesus casting out demons was interpreted as him being sent from the devil. Jesus, of course, sighs then in verse 12, right? I mean, in frustration at some level, right? That they don't, of course, they don't want a sign. Or they don't, what it, what it really is, is they don't want the signs that he's given them. When Jesus says no sign will be given this generation, he's already given a bunch of signs. He's not saying, I'm not going to give you any sign. He's going to say, I'm already giving you them. I'm just not going to give you the ones that you want. You catch that? It's that they're demanding that he conform to something else. That's why Jesus won't give them the sign. In fact, Jesus' resistance to them is meant to highlight their bad intentions, right? Because anybody can see the signs Jesus has done. You can hardly contain it. The word keeps going around. Jesus keeps telling people, don't talk about it. And they keep talking about it. It's everywhere, right? The signs that Jesus is from God are everywhere. But they're not the signs the Pharisees want. This is really important for us to understand. Most of us want God to give us something specific. And our faith in Him, our confidence in Him is rooted in that more than in what He tells us He will give us. Look, this can, this can look a lot different in different situations. For Christians, of course, on the one hand, we give lip service to believing God trusting in God, but our lives are often kind of different. There are plenty of things we think God ought to conform to, and instead perhaps of challenging God, we simply conveniently ignore the things that he tells us, what he calls us to, right? Because we have other agendas. So, look, as Americans, we're pretty uncomfortable with what the Bible has to say about money. It doesn't really fit the American way of life very easily, does it? So we conveniently ignore it. Uh, think about sexuality, right? Uh, we conveniently often ignore what it has, the Bible has to say about it. Uh, sometimes we ignore, actually, <laughs> if we're more conservative, we tend to ignore that the Bible actually acknowledges that it's kind of a mess. And, like, people are all over the place. And that's sort of the way we are, certainly in our fallen state, right? And we will try to ignore that, say that's not, nor that's not normal. Well, in the fallen state, that is kind of normal. On the other hand, if we're more liberal, we will not like the restraints that the Bible puts on it. Ignoring, of course, in fact, that the, some of the deepest and most profound hurts people experience are through lack of restraint in that particular area. So we're uncomfortable with that. We're uncomfortable with ideas of justice in the Bible. Because if we're, again, kind of conservative, we emphasize individual responsibility. And it's true, the Bible talks a lot about us being responsible for our actions, right? Individual responsibility is important. If we're liberal, we'll talk more about those who, the conditions of those who are vulnerable. And guess what? The Bible talks a lot about that too all over the place, in the Mosaic Law, in the Psalms, in the Prophets. It talks about 
the fatherless and the widow, the poor and the immigrant, the stranger, right? Those are all over the place. And the reality is we like to conveniently ignore whichever one is not to our liking. We want to pick and choose. But that's not the way God sees it. Christ, uh, Non-Christians, of course, well, uh, let's give you credit. You're at least going to be a little more honest, right? I want God to be this way. And unless it's clear to me that he is, I'm not sure I want to buy into this. Fair enough. I mean, that's, I mean, you know, I think that's more honest than many Christians want to be. But, of course, the ramifications are that we presume that we know the right answers. When we look 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, on and on, do we think they had it right? No. I mean, it would be the height of arrogance for us to think that we have it all figured out and that our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, won't look with embarrassment on the things we overlooked. Is that they, they put our own way of viewing the world at the center. And again, maybe we conveniently ignore what God is about, or we actually confront him about it. Either way, we're saying, look, my perspective is the way things are. And of course, when we're talking about God, if we are talking about one who's infinite, immortal, unchangeable, and his goodness, kindness, justice, righteousness, <laughs> perhaps we ought to be the ones looking for perspective. Perhaps we ought to be the ones, have it with a little humility, looking for God to show us the world differently, show us who we are in it differently. And look, as a community, this would mean something pretty profound. It would mean that we don't have all the answers. It's not a good thing. That, you don't put that on your church billboard, right? You, 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 that we, don't, we, don't, we don't have all the answers here. Instead, a church should be less interested in proving that it knows everything and that it has everything figured out and more interested in the pursuit of listening to God, recognizing that we probably have lots of things we need to work on, lots of ways in which we need to change. The Bible has a word for that. It's repentance. And the Bible is pretty clear that repentance for the Christian and I would say for the Christian community just as much, is a way of life. It's not a one-time event. This is why we confess every Sunday. Because over and over again, we need to stop and take stock of who we are and realize when we go before God that we need to see our lives differently. That the way we see the world is not the same way that he sees it. We need to gain perspective and perspective comes, and Jesus is quite clear about this, with a kind of sensitivity. So this is the second point. It's not merely that we gain perspective, but that perspective comes with sensitivity. This is how it works out here. Jesus has just had this encounter with the Pharisees, and he gets back in the boat, and if you've been in our series on Mark, you keep hearing about Jesus crossing back and forth over the Sea of Galilee. This is what they do. They're back and forth. They go back again, you know, one more time across the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples realize they forgot the bread. 
They didn't bring any food with them. Jesus takes the occasion, right, uh, uh, to, and this is verse 15, to make an object lesson out of it. Oh, we're talking about bread? Let me tell you about bread. Don't <laughs> buy into the leaven of the Pharisees, right? Be careful because, you know, what, they, what they're doing can easily work its way around to everyone. It's just this tiny thing, right? Uh, but it works throughout the whole, the whole of the loaf, uh, all, of the, all of the bread. But they misunderstand it, right? They think that for some reason Jesus is upset about them not having the bread. Right, like, oh, Jesus noticed. He seems really annoyed by this. And Jesus is like, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> don't you get it? I don't care about the bread. Let me remind you. Remember, he does, you notice I'm doing this? Uh, let me remind you, this is verses, I don't know, what is it, 17, 18, 19. Um, I fed 5,000 people with just a few loaves of bread. 4,000 people with a few loaves of bread. This just happened, by the way, in, in, in Mark. This, I mean, I'm not sure in real time how much time is in between these things, but this just happened, right? Jesus is saying, like, don't you remember? I don't care about how much bread we have. It doesn't really matter. He's saying, I'm trying to make a different point. In fact, what's really, really helpful to see here is the language he uses when he's saying, why don't you understand? This is verse 17. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Do you, uh, are your hearts hardened, having eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear? Jesus has used that language before in Mark. He uses it back in chapter 4 when he tells a parable about what his ministry is like. And this is the parable of the different soils, that sort of thing. And then Jesus says afterwards, he quotes from Isaiah 6. He says, look, I speak in parables in order to test the hearts of people. Because Isaiah, when he was commissioned as a prophet, was told, look, you're going to go, but people are not going to understand. They're going to have eyes but not perceive. They're going to have ears, but not understand. They're going to see you, they're going to hear you, but they're not, they're not going to get it. Jesus is hearkening back to that same language. right? Why are your hearts hardened? Why do your ears not hear? In other words, here's the thing. The thing that he's warning them about, the leaven of the Pharisees, is already at work in them. They already have hard hearts. They hear Jesus, but they don't understand. They see what he's doing, but they don't perceive it. Jesus is pointing out, look, you're in a dangerous spot. And they still don't understand. They still don't get it. What Jesus wants is for them to have tender hearts, not hard hearts. He wants for them to have tender hearts. And look, it's, it's easy, I think, in religious circles to misunderstand those categories. To think, well, hard heart means you're stoic. And a tender heart means you're emotive. And really, that's more of a personality thing. And, you know, maybe some of us who are more stoical ought to be a little more open. And maybe some of us that are emotive 
ought to rein in the crazy a little bit. It's either way, it's more about personality, right? No, what, what hard-heartedness is like is refusing to listen, refusing to see. The metaphors of sight and hearing are so helpful here. It's refusing to notice. You know, I think the best illustration I know of a hard-hearted person is probably from Les Miserables, uh, Inspectors of Air. And some of you might have read the novel. Uh, if you've wanted, when I was reading that, Adrian teased me that I was carrying around a brick all the time because it was enormous. But uh, you read that, or maybe you've seen the musical. But Javert is, a, of course, this uh, this police inspector, right? And he ends up realizing that this other guy, Jean Valjean, is a former prisoner. And even though he's paid, you know, society back for his crimes. Uh, he continues to hound him, doesn't think that he should be a part of polite society. And one of their first interactions before Javert realizes who Jean Valjean is, uh, Jean Valjean is the mayor, has become the mayor of this town, and there is a woman who's down and out, to say the least, uh, who uh, is being victimized by other people, and uh, she lashes out, and she insults Jean Valjean, who's the mayor. She gets dragged into the police station, um, and Jean Valjean insists that they let her go. That he isn't interested in pressing charges. And Javert looks at him and he says, The kindness that consists in favoring a common prostitute over a gentleman, a policeman over the mayor, the man of low estate over the man of high estate, is what I call pernicious kindness. He goes on later and says, it's very easy to be kind. The difficult thing is to be just. And of course, the course of, over the course of that whole story, he learns that he is exactly wrong. And when he finally understands what kindness is, it's his undoing. Because he's built his whole sense of self around being tough. Tough on the law, tough on himself, tough on other people. That's what it's like to be hard-hearted. And of course, when we come to the issue of being hard-hearted towards God, this is precisely what it looks like. Because the issue of hard-heartedness is not simply whether you follow the law or not. I mean, I'll, I'll grant, if you don't want to do anything that God tells you to do, you're probably hard-hearted. Okay, that wasn't the case with the Pharisees, though. They wanted to do everything God told them to. They thought they were doing everything God told them to. And they were still hard-hearted. Because the issue of being hard-hearted is not simply whether you follow the rules or not. It's about how you understand the other person. It's about how you understand God himself. Whether you think God is just simply tough. Or whether you know that he is tender-hearted toward you. And of course, the way that we view God, the way that we view our place sort of in the universe, has everything to do with how we then treat other people. Because you cannot be tender-hearted towards others until you're tender-hearted toward God. And, uh, you know, if we unpack then what tender-heartedness means, it means then being having sight and having hearing, being attentive, right? having your attention actually turned toward the other person. 
and listening to what they're about. So tenderness toward God then means, of course, listening to Him, praying, being in His Word, singing His praises. And then you, and as you start to realize how tender-hearted God is, that's actually what makes us tender-hearted toward Him. John Owen, an old Puritan, said, says this in um, his big book on communion with God. He says, Christians walk oftentimes with exceedingly troubled hearts concerning the thoughts of the Father toward them. He goes on and says, you know, we know that Jesus died for us. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Here. We know that Jesus died for us and that he cares about us, but we kind of think maybe he's often twisting the Father's arm to continue to be kind to us. And he says, this ought to be so far away. His love ought to be looked on as the fountain from whence all other sweetnesses flow. When we're tenderhearted like that, then we are actually enabled to be tenderhearted toward one another. It is God's tender heart that shows us the possibilities of tenderheartedness. It's God's tender heart that opens us up to other people to, to think about them before ourselves. It teaches us how to Be firm with others without crushing them. Showing them the way without putting them under our heel. It shows us how to love even those that are against us. It's not easy, is it? I don't have it figured out. But this is a mark, right? This is the mark of what Jesus is warning us about is of, you know, his kingdom is to have sensitive hearts. And he warns us against having hard hearts. Be careful. Take stock of your own heart. I mean, look, as a church, I think this works out in some pretty simple ways. We are not that big a church. But it's easy to sort of have the people that you know and you keep in touch with, right? Those are the people you're regularly texting with, right? You kind of have ongoing conversations. Maybe you just kind of like, you click with them easily, right? But we're not that big a church. Do you ever stop and think, well, I haven't been in touch with that person since the pandemic started. (laughs) Uh, I haven't seen them. Do we reach out? You could start with one person this week that you haven't been in touch with. Get in touch with them, check in on them, see how they're doing. Let me go another step beyond that. We say that we're a church for Park Circle. That we're a church for North Charleston, for the Charleston area. Do we think about our neighbors? Are we a church that's tender-hearted towards others that maybe aren't like us? And that's kind of tough to realize, right? We're still a predominantly white church, middle-class kind of church, right? That is not our whole community, is it? Now, look, I'm not saying as a church we can just be a blank slate for anybody. Every church still has a culture, right? There, we're, you know, I, I don't think we can buy into the myth that we're going to be colorblind or we're going to be you know, culture blind or something like that. No church works like that. No church works out like that. But we can be tender-hearted towards others. We can be attentive and we can listen. 
We can seek to love out of that. And I know the mission of the church is always a moving target. We never arrive. But there's plenty of places where we can be more tenderhearted towards our community. I'm not calling us a failure. (laughs) I'm not saying this church has, has blown it. I'm saying there's always more, though. How can we continue to renew a tender heart towards our community? So it gives us perspective, and that perspective entails having a tender heart. But it also gives us clarity. And here we get to that, the end here, verse 22 and following. When Jesus heals the blind man. This is a bit of an oddity in terms of the healings uh, because it involves two steps. That really never happens anywhere else when Jesus performs a miracle. Typically, he just says something and it happens, right? (laughs) You'll be healed and they're healed. He'll say it from a distance, right? Oh, go back home. Your child's healed. And sure enough, they find out it was just that (laughs) hour when it happened, right? Uh, That's what happens. Here, you know, there's a temptation to sort of read this as like Jesus kind of botched the operation, right, and then had to go back, you know, clean up what, you know, what was left. Um, You know, because the guy first initially sees, right, but his sight is blurry, and he kind of describes people looking like trees walking around. Um, I guess that was the best he had to explain what they look like. But, uh, but it says that when, when he finally was healed, his eyes were clear. And I, I can tell you there's a lot of disagreement about what to make of this, but I think the most helpful way to understand this is by understanding that, the, that sight has been such an th- important theme in what we've been talking about. Right? They, they were, there were signs asked for, right? a visual confirmation of what Jesus is, what he's doing, his legitimacy, right? A visual confirmation. And then the metaphor for having tender hearts is being able to see. One of the main metaphors. And you know that elsewhere Jesus plays on that imagery too, right? He'll say from time to time, he who has ears, let him hear. So he plays on that auditory and visual. And here Jesus takes this guy with the blindness and he heals him as a process. Isn't that what the clarity of the Christian life is exactly like? <laughs> it is not one blinding flash and then everything makes sense for the rest of your life, every day. In fact, I can tell you that's not how the Gospel of Mark thinks of it. Because at the, near the end of chapter 9, there's another healing. And, a fa- and Jesus asks his father, do you believe? And he says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Well, which is it? Do you believe? Or do you, you know? It's like, yeah, he believes. I mean, mostly. You know, like I got to grow in that, I guess. You know, like that's what he's saying, right? Because I believe, I, yeah, I do. I mean, I, I kind of don't some of the time, right? But I I do. He's looking to grow, right? And that's exactly what Jesus is showing us here by illustration, is that this man is slowly gaining sight. If the disciples are hard-hearted, and they had seen Jesus do all of these things, in person, right? Like, they saw it with their eyes, 
they live with him, they talked with him, they got all the privileged information. <laughs> you know, Jesus would tell parables, and then they got to be like, hey, Jesus, what? Tell us what was that, that was about. Um, it's one of those things where we have to realize as Christians that we don't realize everything right away. And many of you can testify to this, right? That there are aspects of your life that you maybe even knew in principle to be true. But it wasn't until you had an experience, right, that it lands. I mean, look, if you grow up in the church, you might know that you're a sinner. But there has to be a moment where you, that comes home to roost, right? That, oh man, I messed up big. I hurt others badly. Right? There has to be that kind of moment in your life. But more than that, and more importantly than that, there has to be the, a moment where the tenderheartedness of God comes home to roost. Where the grace of Jesus becomes clearer to you. And I think the longer you live as a Christian, you realize that there are degrees of that kind of practical experience of what you know, right? Where the things that you know in principle, and they may be meaningful, right? They were meaningful when you were younger. It's not that they weren't meaningful, but that they gain in richness, right? You start to see the depths of them more and more and more. And this is what it means then to grow is to have deeper clarity over what Jesus has done. You see, when Isaiah used the language, when Isaiah was told that he was going to go to people that had ears but couldn't hear, eyes but couldn't see, you know, that they weren't going to perceive or understand, he was sent simply to test and prove that the people were hard-hearted. But what Jesus is about doing is softening our hearts, giving us tender hearts, He's going to do that for his disciples. He's, he's already proven that they are hard-hearted. We're going to see that even in the next passage, Jesus is going to start to call them to belief in a new way. Right? He's, going to try to, he's going to draw them out, move them forward, even if it's just a step. He's going to move them forward, and that is what he promises in us, is to give us greater clarity about who he is. And what he has done on our behalf. This is the thing. We have to change. The, the, the grace of God is more than simply receiving us as who we are. It also changes us. It's both things. You know, theologically, the way this gets worked out, <laughs> deeper into the Bible is to point out that, look, you're, you are received and you are not under God's judgment anymore if you're in Christ. Period. End of story. No more judgment. But God, as the Father, wants to see you grow. And that is tough. Because we often confuse what he wants from us as a demand and a condemnation. But he won't have... He would not have us see him that way. That's what John Owen was pointing out before, right? He wants us to understand that all that we receive comes out of his loving heart. 
every last bit. And he is opening our eyes slowly but definitively by the cross. You see, because the point at which the tender heart of God is the clearest is when he dies for us. When Jesus gives his life for you, he is showing you that there is no end to his love. It cannot be exhausted. There's nowhere he is not willing to go for you. There's nothing he's not willing to undertake. There is nothing that he will hold back from his children. Not a thing. He will give his own life on your behalf. See, as a community, we are called to be gathered around God's word. But to be gathered around God's word is to also be gathered specifically around the cross. There are, of course, churches that don't spend much time in the Word. And I don't want to think that we're above that possibility. I hope that we are not. I pray that we're moving in the other direction because we need God's Word because only in Scripture do we find all of the grace of Jesus, all of the beauties of God's character, all of His power to transform us. But Scripture is also clear that the whole point of it is to get us to Jesus and it's also, it's also possible to be a church that, on the one hand, spends a lot of time in the Word, but misses the message. This is like reading Harry Potter and being obsessed about how magic works and trying to figure that out, right? It's like you missed the point. You, you missed that it was about these characters, right? It wasn't really about how you do magic. And Christians miss, I mean, Christians, oh... Lord, help us. We miss it all the time, don't we? We get distracted. Like, some of the things are important to understand, right? There are, we have to sort through some ethical questions, right? That's important, but it's not the focus. It's not what the Bible is about. We have to know a lot of stories as we grow in, in the Word, right? We have to learn a lot of things, but the Bible is not about trivia, Though it's important to understand those things, and the richness of it only opens up the more we do. It isn't even about coming back to have one sort of profound experience again. Although a profound experience from God is a wonderful thing. There was, um, some years back, there was a, uh, a student at Harvard that I knew. She was a, she was a roommate of one of the women in our ministry. And uh, she, she had grown up Muslim, had no experience with the Bible whatsoever. But of course, she had this friend that was in our group and knew a couple other uh, friends that were Christians. And so she started wondering, and without telling anybody, she just started reading the Bible by herself. I mean, lots of us in this room have been Christians our whole life and known the Bible. Imagine not knowing anything about the Bible, really, and just picking it up and starting to read, right? That's daunting. She didn't tell anybody, and she read it for months. And then one day, like with a month left in their senior year, she went to her roommate and said, I've been reading the Bible, and I think I might be a Christian. Now, she had lots of questions, right? So I ended up sitting down with her and 
She had all kinds of cool theological questions and all these other things of, you know, like a minister is like, yeah, somebody really wants to talk about the Trinity? Like, all right, yeah, we'll talk about that. That's all. I spent a lot of time reading about that. I should have somebody to talk about that. But, um, but early on in that conversation, I, you know, she was just kind of telling me her story and talking about reading the Bible. And I said, I'm curious, as somebody who just didn't have any experience with it, what struck you reading the Bible? I also just thought this will be helpful for me to sort of understand her. And what she said was, it is all about the love of God. And I thought that was profound, right? Because those of us who have been around the Word sometimes miss it. Because we've gotten used to presuming that kind of language. We've gotten tired of it. Maybe we just obsess over the, the things that we think shouldn't really be there or the things that bother us. Or we're fastidiously steering around those things which are inconvenient that we don't want to address But what this young woman with fresh eyes saw was the love of God. That is the message from start to end. Is the love of God for you. That gives us clarity. It is the love of God expressed ultimately and finally in the cross that teaches us what God's heart is for us. It is there that we learn to have the sensitivity that he calls us to and to have the perspective of who we are and who he is and what we could be in the world. Let's pray. Father, we need to listen to your word. We need to have an experience of your love. Most of all, Father, we need you to give us those kinds of tender hearts. Pray that you would do it by your spirit, even as you promise. For Christ's sake, amen.